Welcome to the Short Term Show, the show about short term rentals and long term wealth, with real property owners hosting real properties who are crushing it in the vacation and short term rental space. And here's your host, Avery Carl. How's it going, short-term shoppers? Today, we have a very special guest for the podcast. I am very excited. Mr. Tony Robinson, a short-term rental investor, host of the Bigger Pockets Rookie Podcast, and YouTube sensation, soon to be <laughs> on the Real Estate Robinson's channel. Uh, how's it going, Tony? Uh, Avery, it is going great. I'm super excited to be here and uh, excited to share my story with your listeners. I am very excited for them to hear it. So to start off, can you just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into real estate investing, that whole thing? Yeah, Thanks. absolutely. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm one of the, the weird kids growing up that read Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I was, I don't know, like in junior high or something, something around there. Um, my dad was the one that introduced me into real estate investing to begin with. Um, he had uh, set up a wholesale business pretty much uh, in Detroit and Michigan. Um, and we lived in California, so he was kind of doing it remotely, traveling out there a lot. And he did this full time for about five years. Uh, 2008 happened and his business, like many others, uh, didn't make it through, uh, didn't make it through the recession. And one of the things that he told me was that one of his biggest regrets was that of all those properties that he wholesaled, he didn't keep any for himself. And had he just kept like a small portion, he probably would have still been in business for himself uh, post, post recession. So, you know, that, that lesson stuck with me a lot. And I knew that uh, as soon as I had the capital to get started, um, I would become a real estate investor myself. Uh, I got my first long-term rental back in 2019 um, in Louisiana, uh, bought four long-term rentals and then I transitioned over to short-term rentals in 2020. And uh, we've purchased now eight short-term rentals in the last eight months. Uh, we've got another five under contract right now as well. So we've been uh, full steam ahead ever since. That's awesome that you had that, um, that experience of seeing someone who does not hold properties and then realizing, oh, the wealth building comes from actually holding the properties, not selling them. Absolutely. Right. I mean, you know, it, being a wholesaler, being a flipper, those are great ways to produce uh, big chunks of income. But the minute you stop doing those things is the minute you stop receiving the revenue. Um, but when you hold real estate long term, you get the cash flow, you get the appreciation, you get all the other benefits of being an, an actual investor. That's kind of how I feel about the um, arbitrage model. It's kind of like, yes, you're buying and selling or or your dad was buying and selling arbitrage. You're not actually owning the property, although you're running it like a short-term rental, but you're not, you're creating a job for yourself. You're creating some cash flow, but you're not actually building the wealth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot of debate, you know, uh, and, and like you said, I think arbitrage is a great way for people that maybe have uh, minimal capital to get started in the short-term rental space and build up that capital. But, you know, I'm, I'm also a real estate investor and I want to make sure I'm taking advantage of the the basic benefits of real estate investing. And to me, that's long-term appreciation um, and just really having control over the asset as well. Awesome. So do you still have your, um, your long-term rentals or have you sold those off? We sold all but one and we are desperately trying to sell that last one. Um, it's in a flood zone and our flood insurance premium went like way up this year. Um, so it's not as, in as, attractive of an investment as it was uh, a year before, but we're, we're trying to offload all of them 
uh, just haven't successfully done it yet. Awesome. So tell me what markets your short-term rentals are in. Let's hear about that. Yeah. So we're, we're in two markets right now. Uh, we've got two active listings in the Smoky Mountains, and then we've got now six active listings uh, in Joshua Tree, California. So the Joshua Tree really interests me specifically because as an agent in four other states, there's a lot of you Californians coming in to buy with us and owning something in California doing the reverse scares me a little bit. So I hear a lot about Joshua Tree. I see all your posts. Your properties look awesome and it seems like it's a good investment. But uh, can you kind of compare and contrast owning property in California and then owning it in Tennessee? And is that any more difficult or is that a limiting belief of mine? So I'll, I'll answer the first question first about difficulty and then I'll kind of compare and contrast. Um, the difficulty, it's, it's not more, it's not any more difficult to own in Joshua Tree than it is to own in the Smoky Mountains. Um, you know, a lot of people think that California is this terrible place to invest in, but I think it depends on the strategy. If I were to try and do traditional long-term rental investing with single family houses in California, I think that would be a very difficult investment to make, uh, make sense. Um, if I wanted to flip in California, there's a bunch of people flipping in California, making a ton of money. Um, so it's very similar for short-term rentals in that this is a this is a, a strategy that works really well in an expensive market like California. Um, so it, it, it hasn't been any more difficult. Now, there are definitely differences uh, between investing in Joshua Tree and investing in the Smoky Mountains. Um, uh, the, one of the biggest things that we see is that in the Smoky Mountains, um, we own larger properties, right? We've got four bedroom and a, and a five bedroom that are active out there. In Joshua Tree, we've got four units that are 391 square feet, right? 391 square feet. So much smaller properties. And just that's what you see a lot in that market is that there's there's no, there's very rare that you're going to find a five bedroom uh, listing in Joshua Tree or even a four bedroom, like three bedrooms are kind of the, the max you typically see. So the size points are a lot different. The, the travel patterns are different between both markets as well. We see much larger booking lead times in the Smoky Mountains than we do in Joshua Tree. You know, I think in the Smoky Mountains, we're at like 38, almost 40 days is our like booking lead time. In Joshua Tree, we're at like 22. So people tend to book a little bit more last minute in Joshua Tree as well. Um, the, the gross revenues, I think, can be comparable. Um, but right now we're seeing higher revenues for our properties in, in the Smoky Mountains than what we're seeing in, uh, in Joshua Tree. Okay, cool. And your properties in Joshua Tree, what size are those since you said there's not really a lot of big ones out there? We've got four at 391 square feet. These are tiny homes or studios. Uh, we've got one 600 square foot or 700 square foot studio as well. Uh, then we've got a two bedroom, one bath. It's like a thousand square feet. Um, and then we just got under contract a three bedroom, two bath, like 1400 square feet. So there was a bit of a range, but nothing nearly as big as what we see in, uh, in Joshua Tree. But, and I guess one other thing that's really different about these markets too, Avery, is that, you know, and you know this pretty well yourself, is that in the Smoky Mountains, um, the design and the aesthetic is very consistent from property to property. Um, when people are going to a cabin in the Smoky Mountains, like they're they're not necessarily choosing their cabin based on how uh, like you know the the furnishings and things like that, right? Like there's a very consistent kind of uh, known 
uh, image that people look for in the Smoky Mountains. Whereas in Joshua Tree, people care a little bit more about like that Instagrammable moments. You know, people want to be able to take pictures in your property and post it on their social and get a lot of likes. So we have to curate the experiences um, a little bit more closely in Joshua Tree than we have to do in the Smoky Mountains. I hear that a lot. I get a lot of investors who maybe bought something in a metro market where you do really, if you're buying a short-term rental in a metro market, you really do have to set yourself apart and be really cool. So, you know, that you're not just, oh, some brick ranch house in the middle of a neighborhood that people can rent sometimes. You really do have to make it an experience. And they, a lot of times have trouble jumping over to a more traditional, uh, mature vacation rental market that's been around for a long time that has these kind of almost standardized aesthetics, not just the Smokies, like the beach houses in Florida. A lot of them are, uh, you know, the colors are pretty consistent. There's a lot of white shiplap, a lot of light blue colors. So um, it is, you really do have to tailor your design and, or not design as it were uh, in the Smokies that you don't have to go nuts uh, in some markets where some you do really have to set yourself apart. So that's interesting that you have a little bit of both. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it, it's kind of cool too, though, right? Because there is, you know, I have a friend who just bought a cabin in the Smoky Mountains and he was sitting in his living room and I swore for a second that he was in my cabin. Like that's how similar the, the insides of them looked. Um, but in Joshua Tree, like we've been able to be, be a little bit more creative with our designs. Like we, we just took a listing live this week. Um, it's two studios that share the same lot and we gave them kind of complimentary themes. So one is the seventies house. So it's got this kind of modern retro seventies vibe to it. And the other one is the nineties house. And it's got like this really cool, you know, imagine you had like saved by the bell and like all these other, you know, uh, <laughs> fresh prints kind of themes built into the house as well. So you, you do have a little bit more creative freedom and we enjoy that part. That's amazing. A saved by the bell house. I love it. <laughs> 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 well, so you've bought a lot of these in the past year and a half. What are you doing for financing? So every property that we've purchased, uh, we've used the vacation home mortgage, the 10% down vacation home mortgage. Um, now, there obviously are some limitations. Well, I guess first, let me break down what that is for the listeners that may not be familiar with it. So, um, you know, a typical investment property, you're going to have to put down 20, 25, maybe even 30%. Um, but with a vacation home, uh, since there is no long-term lease in place, you have the option to purchase it as you know personal use. You can use it as a vacation home, but you still have the option to rent it out on Airbnb. And the benefits of using this vacation home are that it's only a 10% down payment as opposed to a 20% down payment. In most scenarios, there are some loan limits. So if you get into like super expensive properties, it goes up a little bit. Uh, but for most of our purchases, it's been a 10% down payment. Um, you get a lower interest rate typically. Um, I think the lowest interest rate we have on all of our properties right now is a 2.65% interest rate for one of our properties out in Joshua Tree. Wow. Um, and then you also get it for a 30-year fixed term. So you get lower down payment, uh, lower interest rate, 30-year fixed. So that's what we've used for, for all of our properties so far. Okay. And I think there are some limitations on that. So make sure that you guys listening, definitely check with your lender, tell them what you're doing and we're not giving you lending advice here. So yeah, check on absolutely. That. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a lender, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a real estate attorney. So please don't hold any of that against me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think everybody has utilized that 10% vacation home loan at some point, you know, when you're buying in a faraway place, it's uh, it's definitely a great option. So 
Let's go back to the markets for a second. So we've talked about how you're financing. How are you identifying the markets? I guess I should have asked that first, comes mm -hmm. first in the process. But how do you identify a market that you're going to invest in for short-term rentals? Yeah, well, I got to give you some some kudos, uh, Avery, because it was your initial podcast on the the OG Bigger Pocket show that, that took me into the Smoky Mountains area. Um, you know, and then obviously, you know, you do your own your, your own homework on these markets. And what I liked in that market was the visitation. Um, you know, the Smoky Mountains is the number one most visited national park in in the United States by far. Um, and there's just so much to do around that market as well. Um, and the fact that it was a bit of a, of a more mature vacation rental market, you know, people have been going there long before Airbnb and Verbo were a thing. People will continue to go there even if Airbnb uh, and Verbo go away. Um, so there, there are a lot of positives in that market that I liked. I also really like the fact that the primary economic driver um, of the Smoky Mountains is the vacation and tourism. Like there are no... There are no really big universities um, in Pigeon Forge. There are no really big business headquarters in Pigeon Forge. There's no uh, like film and TV industry like what we have in LA. Like the main primary economic driver is the vacation rental market. And I like investing in those kind of cities because I feel like it it helps you hedge your bets a little bit against any kind of negative legislation that might might get passed. Um, I will personally probably never buy a short-term rental in somewhere like Los Angeles or Miami or New York or any of these big major metros, because if you turned off Airbnbs in Los Angeles, no one would even notice, like from an economic standpoint. Like there's so much other economic activity in that city that it would be such a small drop in the bucket that people wouldn't even notice. But if you turned off Airbnbs in uh, the Smoky Mountains and, and Joshua Tree as well, there are so many people that rely on that from cleaners to handymen to tradespeople to the local restaurant. Like everyone relies on that travel and that visitation to provide for themselves financially that it would have an adverse impact. So that, that's one thing that we look for. I also like both of these markets because there's relatively low swings in seasonality. Um, like the difference between you know the, the busy seasons and the slow seasons in terms of occupancy and, and, and uh, visitation is relatively small. It's not like some markets where you're, you know, your feasts or famine, where you're at 100% occupancy for a couple of months during the peak season, and you're at like 30% occupancy during the the slow months. So I like the the focus on travel and visitation. I like the consistency of, of visitation throughout the year, and then obviously the the cash and cash returns is the is the last piece to make sure that those are those are strong, those are healthy, and that we're we're getting a good return on our investment. Right. So you're not just gonna like run off and buy at a random lake somewhere just because there's not a lot of short-term rentals. I get a lot of people, I hear a lot of people, they're like, oh, there's a lake like 20 minutes from my house and there's only like four houses on it. Let me Airbnb this. And then the problem with that becomes that if any more are added, then all of a sudden you're not making money anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I, I want to, I like the idea of investing somewhere that's a little bit more mature. Um, you know, same thing for Joshua Tree. People have been visiting Joshua Tree for decades for, you know, I don't know, it's been a national park for I don't know how long now, but it's been a very consistent place where people go, they vacation, they travel. Um, and, and I like the idea of having that, that kind of maturity in the market as well. So one thing that I hear a lot of investors ask or getting passed around on the internet, things like that, that they look for or that they analyze when they're looking at a short-term rental investment is they want to know what it's going to make if something crazy happens and they have to convert it to a long-term rental. And in the markets that I invest in, sounds like you and I have a very similar uh, criteria for the markets that we invest in for short-term rentals. 
you can't do that. If for some reason, mm -hmm. like, as you said, if Airbnb is turned off in these markets, um, there is no converting to a long-term because there are so many short-term rentals. But to me, that's a good thing. A lot of people are scared of not being able to convert to a long-term rental. But for me, that's what I look for almost in a market because that is a market where they are dependent on that because there's not other jobs outside of the tourism industry. You know, there's not really any industry other than tourism and there's very little hotel presence. So if there's no hotel presence, I don't really care if it can't be converted to a long-term. What do you think? I'm so glad you brought this up, Avery, because I've been making this point a lot lately. Um, it, like you said, you hear some investors that say, uh, you know, I've even heard people say, do not buy a short-term rental if it doesn't pencil out as a long-term rental. And I couldn't disagree more. And the way that I, uh, I guess, the, 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 the way of thinking that I follow is that when you purchase a short-term rental, you are purchasing a small hospitality business, right? You're purchasing your own little small hotel business. And when you think about Hilton or you think about Marriott or Hyatt or all of these other hotel brands, when they go out and they build a hotel, are they asking themselves, if this doesn't work out, can we turn this into an apartment complex? Right. Like that's not a prerequisite for them to build a hotel. Nowhere when they're building this out, do they say, hey, we're only going to build this hotel if we can turn it into an apartment complex in case things go sour. What they do is that they build it knowing that its primary and only function is short term hospitality. And they understand the risk associated with that, but they make the investment knowing those risks. So that's the same mindset that I take when I'm investing in short-term rentals. I don't have an exit plan of turning these into long-term rentals because like you said, in most the markets that I invest in, it wouldn't pencil out as a long-term rental, but it's still a great investment because it's a short-term rental, the numbers make sense. I love that. I 100% agree. And while we're on the topic of misconceptions that investors make about choosing short-term rental markets, another one that I see a lot of people get really excited about is going into a market with zero short-term rental regulations. That to me is more dangerous than trying to buy one where it's already regulated that you can't do mm -hmm. it because markets that have zero regulations, it's not if the regulations are coming, it's when they're coming and you don't know mm -hmm. what they're going to be. So if you, you want a market that already has the regulations are in place, like these markets that we're talking about that have been short-term rental markets since before the internet. <laughs> these are areas that that battle was fought decades ago. And that is why these areas are now really dependent on the income from those because it's not a new thing as of the past 10 to 15 years that the city council has to sort out with either hotel lobbyists or primary homeowners. So you want to go into a market that already has some regulations and has had them for a long time. Now, you don't necessarily want to go into one that has really, really strict ones, but no regulations is not a good thing, in my opinion. What do you think? Yeah, it's so funny. Um, a, yes, I agree with you. You know, I, I think I'd be really nervous going into a market that has no regulations as well for all the reasons you said. Right? It means that it's a it's a new market in terms of short term rentals, and who knows which which way that that coin is going to fall. But you know, you I feel like you see a lot of new or aspiring short term rental investors who are afraid of regulation. And I, I think we kind of have to change our perspective on regulation. Just because a city increases its regulation on short-term rentals, that doesn't mean that the, the, that the demand in that market 
is going to change, right? If the cities of Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg made it a little bit harder to get short-term rental permits, that doesn't mean that less people are going to travel to Gatlinburg and to Pigeon Forge. So we have to separate the ideas of you know demand in a market with the regulations in a market. And in my mind, I'm, I'm almost okay with uh, the, the cities that I invest in making a little bit harder for people to get short-term rental permits because it, it just kind of decreases the competition. So if you have this situation where demand is continuing to rise, right? We're seeing that in the Smoky Mountains where the visitation went up from 2019 to 2020. Um, we're seeing that in Joshua Tree. It went down a little bit in 2020 because of you know COVID, obviously, but 2018 and 2019, there was an increase. So if you continue to see this increase in visitation, but the regulations become a little bit stricter, what that means is only the people who are serious investors are going to jump through the hoops to actually get that permit and maintain that permit. And if you're one of the people that are willing to jump through those hoops, you're going to benefit greatly because you'll be one of the only few folks that are left. Boom. Let's <laughs> <Mic drop. laughs> just end, end the podcast right now. <laughs> cool. So uh, I guess this is now, because we've gone down this rabbit hole, going to be an episode on misconceptions of investors getting into short-term rentals. I think we'll just do one more, but you've got me taking notes here. So previous rental history, if you're buying something that is not a new construction, which I know you buy a lot of new construction, but you bought some that mm -hmm. aren't, what does a property's previous rental history mean to you as an investor? Very little, honestly. Um, you know, the, the first cabin we bought in the Smoky Mountains, um, I think in the year of 2019, it did like $86,000 in gross revenue. And we're probably going to double that in the first 12 months that we own it. So, you know, I'm, what, what, what I look at is not so much who the previous owner was. I'm looking at the comps. I'm looking at what are other comparable cabins that are being managed in the same way that I would manage them. How are those cabins performing, right? Um, I know that I'm going to bust my butt when I get this, this property under my ownership. So what the previous person was doing is, you know, it bears very little, uh, weight on how I think it'll perform in the future. We call that the enemy method around here. I can't talk. We call it the enemy <laughs> method where you look at what other, other cab comparable cabins are doing. And mm -hmm. I agree with you again. I think that rental history is a total variable. And I'm going to borrow one of my colleagues, Derek's story right now. He owns a one bedroom that he uh, he bought last year and he got a phone call from a local rental company uh, about a month and a half ago trying to get him to put it on, put his cabin on their rental program. And he said, oh, well, what do you think you can do with it? And they said, let me get back to you. And they called him back and said, oh, I think we can do about 35,000 a year with your property. And he goes, well, I've already done 50 and it's only six months in. So I think I'm just going to keep it the way that it is. <laughs> and, you, and you see that a lot, right? You, you see that a lot is that the person that's running it is almost more important than the asset. Um, you know, and, and there, are, there, you know, if I can break down every how how we kind of do our due diligence on a property when we're looking to buy it. Um, now, now we're pretty familiar with our market, so we have a pretty decent idea of how a different property is going to perform. But um, we use Price Labs as our dynamic pricing tool, and Price Labs recently released this thing called uh, Market Dashboards. And through Market Dashboards, um, you can view all of the listings in your selected market. Um, and Price Labs gives you a ton of data on all of these listings. You can see the number of reviews that that listing has. You can see what their occupancy was over the previous 30 days. You can see what their average listed price is over the next 365. 
and you can see what their revenue was in the trailing 30 days. Um, so with that information, you should be able to, and you know, and you can go through, click the listing, see which ones are comparable to the property you're thinking about buying. But with that information, you should be able to get a really good estimate of what the gross revenue will be for, for any property that you're looking at. That's really interesting. We use Price Labs. I didn't even know that they had that feature. I'm going to go look at that right after we get off this call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's new. They, they just rolled it out, I think, like uh, like maybe three months ago. So like like uh, right after the turn of the year, they released this market dashboard feature. And it's been like, a, there's like so much information over there. It can be overwhelming. But one of the really cool things you can do is like create custom comp sets uh, through their market dashboard. Awesome. Awesome. So I'm, I'm totally going to, so I've got a property in Cape Sandblast, Florida under contract right now. And it's somebody lives there. Uh, it's, it's a fairly new property. It was built in 2019, but it's definitely been kind of junked up from people living there. And I'm going to go take a look at that, but, um, it may not. So this market, I feel really good about Cape Sandblast because there's not a lot of Airbnb owners on, there's a lot, there's two like major, local short-term rental companies, but, or maybe three. And there's, there's people on VRBO. There are, but they're not what I would call investors. You can kind of tell by somebody's listing mm -hmm. if they just like have it up just because, or mm -hmm. if they're really trying to make money on it, there's like very few people on Airbnb. So I'm very excited about it. But um, anyway, that has nothing to do with price labs, but what I was going to tie that into is so that probably works in a market like the Smokies where there's a lot of short-term rentals with a lot of data to measure. Uh, how do you feel about more up and coming short-term rental markets where the tourism is there, but, and the regulations are, you know, um, stable, but there's not a lot of other, like what I would call short-term rental investors in the market yet. There's just, you know, people who own vacation homes who have it on some property manager just to pay for it while they're not there? That's a good question, Avery. Um, I think I would have a little bit of hesitation, but for me, as long as I can always have some data to point to, then I think I feel confident making a decision. Um, so like if, you know, the, the, I, I guess the approach that I would take is I would try and connect with some of those other owners, whether that's going to the property management company, if I got to call them and tell them, hey, I'm thinking about buying, you know, a property and, you know, I want you guys to manage it for me. What are your projections and see what they say. But I, I would just need to have some way of to start gathering information on what some of these other properties are doing. And if I can get enough positive data points to support my decision, then I probably move forward with it. But Cape Sandblast, I'm, you know, I might have to hit you up after this call and, and have you connect uh, me with someone out in that market, too, so we can we can pick up something out there also. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I'll connect you. We have an agent there, but I will backtrack and say I do have a little bit of a cheat sheet. This is how small of a world the short-term rental world is. So this property hit the market. I emailed the agent, start talking to him. He sends me, he goes, oh, I think I know you. And I'm like, no, you don't. I have nothing to do with that market. Um, and he sent me a list of like, he's he has a big book direct website. He doesn't use a lot of Airbnb but he owns a cabin in the Smokies or he owns two or three. He sold two last month, FISBO, cause he's licensed in another state. And uh, one of our agents sold them. So he knew who I was already in this really random market in Florida. It's not that random. It's definitely an up and coming market. It's called the forgotten coast. People are starting to pay attention to it, but mm. he gave me all the, he showed me everything that his properties are doing. He owns one on the same street. So I feel good about it. 
Yeah, and let me, let me add one thing to that too, Avery. I think the the point you just made about connecting with other people is is super super important. For the listeners, you would be surprised at how uh, giving uh, people are with information about their their rentals and their properties. Like, if you find the right Facebook group, obviously, you know Avery's got her short term shop uh, group on Facebook. There's the Airbnb Home Away group. Like, there's so many different groups out there on Facebook with um, active short term rental owners. That if you're thinking about going into a market, one of the first things I would do is just try and talk to someone that's already in that market. Ask them, like, hey, what do your expenses look like? Right. Like how much are you paying in, in cleaning fees? Like and they'll give you all that information. I've yet to find someone that's been stingy with um, sharing that that kind of knowledge. I found that to be true. Also, actually, across all real estate investing asset classes, not just short term rentals, is that mm. most people are really willing to share and help you. I mean, not in terms, they're not going to do any work for you, but they are willing to share what they've done. It's your job to do your own push ups, of course. But mm they have been super helpful. Whereas many other industries like the real estate sales side, like real estate agents, you ask them for help and they're like, mm -mm, you're taking market share away from me. I'm not helping you. Uh, mm -hmm. But there's really with the real estate investor community, everybody really does seem to come from a place of abundance. And that's been really awesome because, you know, I've only been an investor for about five years and I could not have, we couldn't have done it without the very first woman who answered my random husband, who is a random person on the internet asking her for help. Um, we couldn't have done it without her. And she probably has no idea. She's probably like that annoying guy who talked my ear off, but she took the time out of her day to tell him, Oh yeah, I managed my cabin in the Smokies from Memphis, which is nine hours, which gave us the confidence to go, Oh yeah, we can do this. We can do this from Nashville where we were at the time. So uh, the real estate, I mean, kudos to the real estate investing community for really being cool to each other, being excellent to each other, to quote Bill and Ted. Yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. But you you made a you made a really important kind of distinction there, Avery, is that you also you said do your own push-ups. And I think that's so, so true because sometimes I get people to reach out to me and it's just like, you know, like all of these like really, really basic questions where if they just did like a little bit of research, they probably could have figured that out on their own. Like some people come to me and say, hey, what market should I invest in? And it's like, <laughs> how can I, you know, how can I answer that question for you? A more specific question would be, hey, Tony, I'm looking at this specific market, and, you know, in this specific zip code, I'm looking at this property size. How would you say that I should, you know, estimate my whatever, my gross revenue for this, you know, like be more like show, show that you're doing a little bit of work on your own before <laughs> yeah. you go and just like dump these really big open ended questions on, on other people. I totally agree with that. And when people come to me, honestly, and say, hey, I'm looking for any short-term rental that hits these metrics in these 27 different markets. I like, I don't even call them back because I'm like, you're not, you don't, you're not doing any work. You don't even know right. what you want. Right. <laughs> but while we're on the subject of giving people advice and a place of abundance, uh, we're, mm. we're down to the last three questions of the mm. interview. And what advice do you have that you would give to 20 year old Tony, if you could talk to him today? Yeah, I, I think the thing that I would tell myself is to have patience. Um, you know, I like I said, I, I I had the real estate bug early on in my life and just the entrepreneurial bug, right? Like I was a kid that was in junior high selling like uh, snacks to all the other kids out of my lockers. You know, I had like a car washing business. I had a two like I did all these different things growing up and it was always in the in the chase of that that like, you know, that entrepreneurial success. 
And at times I found myself beating myself up at 20 years old because I wasn't a millionaire yet, you know? And it's like, you, you got to have a little bit of patience uh, to know that true mastery takes time. And becoming world-class at something doesn't happen overnight. Um, and that it's, it's this day in and day out grind of, of doing the same thing over and over and over again that really builds mastery. So I think that's what I tell myself is to, is to be patient um, and just focus on the, the small steps to, to build that mastery. Very good advice. Very good advice. So kind of along the same lines, a little bit different question, though. What advice do you have for a new investor who's looking to get into the market right now? Because market's kind of crazy. We all know it. What advice do you have for a newbie trying to do it now? I think, and this is kind of what I, what I tell everyone who's looking to get started. I think the first thing is to understand your uh, financial ability, right? Like how much, how much do you have to go out and spend? What is your purchasing power? Once you've identified that part, that'll hopefully lead you into what markets your budget allows for, right? Maybe it's the Smoky Mountains, maybe it's Joshua Tree, maybe it's somewhere else, maybe it's Three Rivers, California, or maybe it's the Shenandoah Mountains in Virginia, right? Like, know what your what your budget is, know what your purchasing power is, then go find a market that supports that budget. Once you found your market, start building relationships in that market as well, right? Talk to agents, talk to other uh, short-term rental owners in that market, start building your familiarity with, uh, with that market and what it has to offer. And then start putting in offers, right? Um, there, there's, you know, like you said, things are very competitive right now. Some things are on market. If you got to get creative, go talk to a wholesaler, right? Maybe find an older beat up property that needs a little bit of work that you can refinance and maybe pull all of your capital out. So it starts with the financing, then your market, and you got to focus on getting the deals put in. Um, I think those are probably the, the three hardest steps. Um, and you know, learning how to run the Airbnb when it happens, that's, uh, that's something that's, that's people can worry about after they get the, the deal closed. <laughs> I agree. That's a different ball of wax. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Last question. What is your favorite book or a book that has significantly impacted your mindset? Yeah, I, I gotta give I gotta give a couple here uh, because I, I do have like some foundational books that changed my life. Um, obviously, Rich Dad Poor Dad. I think anyone, and I'm sure most people listen to this podcast have already read it, but uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad is a big mindset book. Um, a book that I've recently read um, is called Profit First, and I think you and Luke uh, are big proponents of this book. Also, um, I read that book maybe three months ago now, and that's been like an absolute game changer for me. Um, it, you know, it's just about really making sure you have the right financial systems in place for your business. Um, you know, I use like the digital envelope system in my personal finances, but for whatever reason, I never thought to use it in my, in my business finances. So that's been huge. Uh, the E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber is another huge book. Um, we're in the process right now of starting to build out our team, uh, both the people here domestically and, you know, some, some VAs overseas. So that book has been big for us and just making sure that we're, we're very clear on what our org chart looks like, what duties and responsibilities are, what each person is accountable to, to completing. Um, so the E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber is a big one. Um, and then one other one that has almost nothing to do with business, but it's just like a great relationship book. Um, it's the five love languages. Um, and you know, it's, it's primarily focused on like, you know, husband and wife, significant other, but there are lessons in that book that translate to every like relationship you have with someone else. So the five love languages, um, huge book for me on, on the personal side as well. So sorry, you said one, I think I gave you like four. <laughs> no, that's great because everybody loves a good book recommendation. So yeah. any, any book, you know, more is better. So we, I love that. I love email. I just recently, I would say in the past six months, got out of the pie lady role in mm -hmm. my own business. And yeah. uh, it's definitely, it's been a good thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's easy to get, you know, stuck in that trap. And, you know, I'm, 
we, we think that, you know, you become an entrepreneur, you build your own business, not just for the financial freedom, but for the time freedom as well. And sometimes it's so easy to just keep building, building, building that, you know, you look up and now you've built this thing that's uh, more time consuming than any W2 job that you ever had. So it's nice to kind of have that reminder that even as you scale, you want to start putting the systems in place to give the business or to make sure the business is giving you what you actually want from it, which is both financial freedom and time freedom. Exactly. And that is so important. Otherwise, you're just going to drive yourself crazy and burn yourself out and then have not have anything to build anyway. So. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> awesome. Well, Tony, thank you so, so much for your time. Really enjoyed our interview. A lot of great content here. And how can our listeners find you uh, online? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm in a few places. Um, so obviously the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Rookie Podcast, we put out new episodes every Wednesday and Saturday. So you guys can connect with me there. Um, on Instagram, I'm at Tony J. Robinson, uh, trying to put out a lot of helpful content on that platform as well. And then my wife and I just launched a, a YouTube channel. So we are the Real Estate Robinsons on YouTube. So if you want a behind the scenes, look at all the shenanigans that it takes to run our, our short term rental business and you guys can follow us there. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much for your time again, and we'll catch you next time.